From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. Clark Corbin is basically halfway around the world at this point. He is hiking through the Himalayas on a journey that will take him to Everest Base Camp. But don't worry, I'm not flying solo this week. We will have Greg Wilson, Governor Brad Little's education policy advisor, joining us in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about the governor's education task force and other topics. But first, let me get you caught up on this week's education headlines. Well, it's May heading into June, which means that it's contract negotiation season across the state. And as I caught up to see what's going on in some of the larger districts in the state, I found that several of the largest districts in Idaho have already settled on contracts for the 2019-2020 school year. West Ada, Boise, Bonneville, Idaho Falls, Coeur d'Alene, and Twin Falls all have agreements in place or awaiting final ratification either by teachers' unions or by school trustees. This negotiation process stands in stark contrast to what we've seen in cities such as Denver and Los Angeles where teachers have gone on strike this year to protest teacher pay issues. And it also comes in the wake of some confusion about teacher salary schedules in light of legislation that came out of the 2019 session. You can get caught up on the negotiation process at idahoednews.org. In other news, Boise's economic boom may not be sustainable, and part of the problem may lie in the state's school system. That's the sobering analysis that comes from the Brookings Institution, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. In a new study looking at four growth communities, including Boise, the Brookings Institution says, quote, the education system in Idaho hasn't kept up with the human capital demands of local industry, forcing companies to expand elsewhere. I take a deep look at this study and what it means for education and what the institution said not just about post-secondary education, but early education. You can check out the report and my analysis at idahoednews.org. And in an ongoing story from Eastern Idaho, the state's Charter School Commission says that retiring Charter School Administrator Fred Ball may have violated the state's bribery and corrupt influence laws. The commission makes this claim in a letter that was sent Tuesday to Bingham County Prosecutor Paul Rogers. The claim centers around some transactions involving modular buildings, an issue that we've uh, written about at idahoednews.org since January. The letter from the Charter Commission is not a request for investigation, and it's up to Rogers, the county prosecutor, to decide what to do next. And when he was interviewed earlier this week, he was noncommittal about what the next steps may be. The letter from the Charter Commission comes in the wake of a detailed forensic audit conducted at the two schools, Bingham Academy and Blackfoot Charter Community Learning Center. Some findings from that audit. Auditors tracked about $130 million in transactions, but said that they had no time to analyze the the transactions. They noted that record keeping for the schools appears to be, quote, somewhat disorganized, end quote, but also said, quote, it appears that the record keeping process is improving at the charter schools. Devin Bodkin has been tracking this story since December, and he has the latest at idahoednews.org. And now for our interview. Five months after taking the oath of office, Governor Brad Little has an opportunity to make an imprint on education on two fronts. His education task force begins work next week. 
Meanwhile, the governor has the opportunity to appoint two members to the State Board of Education. As we head into this transition, I sit down with Greg Wilson. He's Governor Brad Little's education policy advisor to get a sense of what to look for. Greg, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Uh, as I said, as a, as a long-time uh, listener uh, of the podcast, it's, it's an honor to be here. So that's a cautionary tale to podcast listeners. If you listen long enough, you might wind up on the show too. So That's right. But we have a lot to get to, and I appreciate you coming in, especially with uh, what's coming up next week, what's coming up Monday, the first meeting of the, uh, of the Governor's Task Force on Education. Give us a sense, first of all, of what to expect on Monday. So Monday, uh, the meeting is going to take place at the Stuckel Sky Center at Boise State at 9 a.m. Um, that's really going to be an organizational meeting. So uh, the governor is going to kind of kick off the, the meeting. It's going to be a half-day meeting. The governor is going to kick off the meeting. Uh, we're going to hear from both of the co-chairs about their expectations. And then um, I'm going to outline really the objectives of both the main committee and then the four subcommittees that you and Clark talked about a few podcasts ago. Um, that's kind of the division of labor we're envisioning. Uh, I, we're also going to have a discussion about uh, we're going to we're going to calendar out the next five months. We think mm -hmm. that's vitally important because it's a pretty quick turnaround time. Um, you know, we're looking to have recommendations by November. There's either Friday, November 1st or Monday, November 4th. Um, and so we just need to map this out, both when the subcommittees are expected to meet and then the main committee. Um, and then I think at the, toward the end of the meeting, we're going to have a, a discussion. There was, there was a request of all the members to uh, have them provide a little bit of feedback on the 2013 recommendations and kind of what they had thought about the implementation, you know, uh, just their general thoughts on implementation and how those have kind of panned out over the past four to five years. You touched on a point that I wanted to ask you about, the, the timetable. I mean, it's early June. The task force is starting work. You hope to have recommendations by November in order to have something to act on in the 2020 legislative session. That doesn't leave a lot of time. Sure. How do you manage that? And you know, how important is it to the governor to have something actionable that he can take to the legislature in January? Although the time, you know, although that, you know, it's a quick turnaround time, I think the feedback I've gotten from both the co-chairs and the members is that that's, that's a good thing. I mean, you don't want these, you know, necessarily to drag out. I mean, it has, I have a clock on my phone about kind of a, a timeline. I think we're at 154 days or something. And so while it's a quick turnaround time, I think, uh, I think that that's helpful to kind of moving along the process. I also think it's important to kind of consider that that 2013 was a much different exercise. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of the conversation I've been having with people is that that was really there was a lot of there was an incubator of a lot of good ideas in that task force, and obviously there was a focus on uh, collaboration on working together. This one is going to be in some ways a recalibration, um, which means that you know a, a five month timetable makes that more doable when you're doing those kinds of assessments and then I think that this task force is going to be much more focused. Where do you want that focus to be? The governor, you know, and we've talked about this, is that he talked about on the campaign trail that it was it was always positive that there was a clear five-year 
trajectory uh, or plan for public education that you weren't you know every session going downstairs and kind of duking it out that mm -hmm. that there was a common uh, understanding of where we needed to go what the areas of focus is ne focus needed to be whether it was on policy or budget and I think he really wants to create that next five-year plan now I think for this exercise to be successful we need to look at one or two and this is when you talk about focus one two three kind of key goals and they really need to be around achievement i think we've seen a lot of the investment um, and i'm not saying that there isn't going to be more investment but we need to really start talking about achievement and accountability and mm -hmm. i think you cover the legislature enough to know that you hear a lot about return on investment so i think if I can just kind of talk about the division that I we, we've been discussing is that that main task force is going to be focused on strategies on two or three key points of student achievement, really moving the dial so five years from now we can point back and say, okay, this strategy, this investment, this policy did make an impact. I think that that's an expectation everybody has, including the governor, on this process. And I think uh, tied to that, obviously, is the accountability mechanisms we have. And so with the subcommittees, I think that they're going to be in a place where they're providing recommendations that support that effort. And then they're going to have some specific policy areas where they're going to focus on. So if you're talking about the K-12 budget uh, committee, you're talking about things that are a priority to the governor, like uh, like budget stability, like, you know, are there programs that are crowding out other priorities? I mean, just typical cleanup work that needs to happen. Right. So there's not autopilot programs. But then I think that that's a conversation when you're saying, well, what items in the budget are aligned with our achievement objectives uh, and that discussion about accountability? When you talk about the pipeline, that really comes down to the workforce, you know, and I think that as you've seen, I know you guys had an, an opinion piece a couple weeks ago from Rob Winslow and carry overall, um, you know, that the, there are still discussions about how do we retain the most effective educators in Idaho's classrooms. And typically those are our veteran teachers. Mm -hmm. They're people that have stayed in the profession and they know what they're doing. And it's a discussion that goes back to the 2013 task exactly. force and the teacher salary structure that or, came out of that and what the legislature has done with the career ladder and perhaps not addressing the high end of the salary schedule. Exactly. It's 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 a recalibration and building off of kind of the blueprint that was put forward in 2013. Um, the third subcommittee that you guys have discussed was the rural and underserved uh, schools a school district subcommittee. And so that's really going to be about opportunities. How do we ensure, you know, if, if you know, I think that literacy is going to be one of those uh, discussions that the main task force has is how do we make sure we're moving the needle on literacy and the governor said if you're not doing the right thing when it comes to literacy instruction I mean you're kind of wasting the the 1.8 billion dollars that mm -hmm. you do on in, in public education k-12 spending I mean we all know that it's foundational to both learning opportunities within uh, you know within the school system but then also lifetime opportunities so um, that is going to be a focus and so that really does again the subcommittees I've articulated so far, discussed so far, really, you know, can can focus on that and then focus on specific recalibration and cleanup items that they can do. And then finally, a school facilities and school safety. I mean, that's really talking about the environment. And that's also addressing a need that 
continues to uh, you know be a discussion in in kind of the K twelve world when you have districts that can't pass bonds or you have buildings that you know aren't providing that environment you know conducive to learning um, and I think that when it comes to school safety I mean we kind of we have a lot of different efforts on school safety I think we need to we need to kind of come together and, and, and choose one direction on school safety looking both at the facilities aspect and looking the personnel the facility, the training you know and, and another the mental thing, health aspect. and Debbie or Debbie Critchfield and I were talking about this yesterday you know uh, the discussion about you know the you know mental health and that you know that component kind of a more holistic uh, conversation and so I think that you know I think the subcommittees are going to have a narrow focus to kind of facilitate and assist the main committee in their achievement objectives um, but then are also going to provide recommendations that uh, are recalibrations or updates to the 20 recommendations from 2013. Talk a little bit about the makeup of the task force as well. Um, as we were talking about it before we pressed the record button, it felt to me as I looked at the the makeup of the task force, it's it's the constituencies that I think everybody would have expected uh, represented. I mean, if, if you did a mock draft, you would have representations from the business community, uh, superintendents, school boards, but not as much of an emphasis, I thought, on the folks that you and I see at the state house day in and day out. Sure. The, the, the folks who you know, who testify, who wear green tags, and but much more of a focus on folks from those constituencies, businesses, school boards, mm-hmm. uh, school administration from the ground. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, I mean, I I talked to all those folks. If you look at the 2013 membership, I think the first thing that struck me when I you know, the governor and I were talking about it was, it was an awfully big group. And I don't know if we, we, you know, with 26 members, I don't know. I think there were 31 then. I mean, we didn't come in. It's it's hard to come up with a number any lower than that. Um, but, you know, you saw people on there that obviously the executive directors from the associations were on there. One of my predecessors, Roger Brown, was on there. We did make the conscious decision that, you know, I'm going to be engaged and that those those staff members are going to be supporting the members that participate on that. And that we wanted to make sure that the membership, uh, you know, provided a diverse perspective where, you know, just from different parts of the states, from different communities, um, and just with different a different set of challenges when it comes to delivering on that constitutional obligation on K-12. And so um, that's kind of was the thinking there is that, that let me and other staffers would be engaged anyway and that it was important to get their members on there and principals. And, and if you're really trying to address some of the, the equity issues and some of the uh, uh, rural education issues, you want to hear from folks from, Genesee, from those communities. From St. Mary's, from you know, uh, you know, Kimberly from, you know, I think that's exactly right. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, that was a conscious decision and I had conversations with them and, and again, that we're all going to be engaged in this effort. And so it's important who's at the table, you know, having those conversations. How does the governor define success from this task force between now and January? Let's say? I really, th- I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize, I mean, this does have to be, this, I, this, this is not going to be 20 recommendations. I mean, this needs to be much more narrowly focused. And I think, you know, if we can get three very strong recommendations around achievement and accountability that are narrowly focused, um, and then a few recommendations that, that align with, uh, 
you know, those important efforts of ensuring if we have effective educators, you know, recommendations that are actionable on making sure the budget's stable. I mean, just just kind of talking about the K-12 budget, for example, is that not only do we need to look at, you know, we want to look at some of those line items and make sure they align with those objectives we're going to be defining. Um, but we also want to make sure, I mean, you know, we've had 10 years or nine years of a pretty steady economy. And I mean, I think it's prudent to expect some kind of economic slowdown. And so um, if, you know, we have fewer dollars to invest in, in, in K-12, we want to make sure that those dollars are going to the things that are our number one priority, that it's not just going to this program or that program. And so that, that's going to be a big discussion about that is having this, the most stable budget possible. And I got to imagine that a lot of that is looking at future investments in relation to the investments that have taken place so far. And Precisely. what kind of re- what kind of effect has the career ladder had on teacher retention exactly. and recruitment? What kind of effect are you starting to see with the literacy dollars? Exactly. Opportunity scholarship on down the list. I mean, advanced what, opportunities. What's the return on investment on advanced all opportunities these? is a good example of you know it's 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 obviously a very popular program. Mm-hmm. It's a program that is very impressive. Um, you know the governor this year you know another three million dollars. I mean we truly haven't gotten our arms around it, and I think that it is prudent to have a discussion about okay what was the intent of the program. You know I think the idea was. Uh, providing opportunities, maybe reducing the the cost of of college. You know what I mean? I mean, it is exciting when you go to Renaissance High, for example, and you see the number of kids who are graduating with graduating with an associate's degree. I mean, that's exciting stuff. I mean, they're really mm-hmm. setting themselves on a very positive course. But I think we just need to have a discussion. Are these aligned? Think think back to 2013 about the adoption of the initial recommendation. Look back at the last four years of implementation and practice in the school districts. And do these need to be recalibrated? What needs to be done to make sure they're fulfilling kind of those bigger goals? Because mm-hmm. we only have so many resources available. And so we want those moving, you know, moving the things we want them to be moving. Let me shift gears here. Uh, the legislature through <laughs> the governor and his staff and his administration occur at the end of the session on administrative rules. That's right. You've been busy as a staff and administration trying to, you know, get your arms around uh, what you were handed in terms of, you know, reviewing, renewing, uh, maybe repealing some of these rules. Get us up to speed quickly on where that stands and how it relates all to education. So, you know, those rules were posted, the rules that were going to be allowed to expire, and then the temporary and proposed, those were posted, I believe, last week. Um, And so they're going through the rulemaking process. There's a comment period going on right now. Now, obviously, we want those temporary rules in place by July 1. I mean, that's really the curveball here is you don't want 8,200 pages of administrative code Mm -hmm. to go away. I think one of the positive things, uh, one of the positive exercises here um, has been the opportunity. I think the governor didn't want to let any rules expire that really changed policy. I mean, really, that's not our role. I mean, there's an administrative procedures process. Um, and so you didn't want to let things expire that really had a, a direct impact to policy that kind of went around the process. But there were several, and I think we, it was 136, mm-hmm. there were a lot of chapters um, that were obsolete. And in the education world, for example, I mean, you know, they were uh, promulgated in 1993, um, you know, or they hadn't been, they were obsolete, they hadn't been in use for 10 years. There was a scholarship program, a chapter on a scholarship program in the state board's 
rules, for example, that uh, hadn't been there hadn't been money appropriated that for ten years, and so you know when you have eighty two hundred pages of rules, I think it's prudent to go in there and clean it up when you otherwise uh, don't have those kinds of opportunities. So I think what the governor did, and it was a very smart move, is to turn this into an opportunity to really deliver good government for Idaho, and so that's what we've done here, and so um, we'll see how that's received by the legislature. There's a little bit of tension to that. I mean, there are folks within the governor's own party, folks in the legislature who were probably hoping and probably still hoping to use this as an opportunity to really get at rules that that they feel go too far in the policy realm. And in education, I mean, we could be talking about Common Core, which is encoded in rule, science standards, which are in rule. But you're saying the governor really didn't want to redo policy here as much as I think know, that prune that's, some policy. The, I think the rulemaking of. process, and I mean that again, that review by the legislatures in the state constitution mm-hmm. that happened two years ago. I mean, we have a process where you know these go through a, a robust legislative review, and so yeah, I think that this was more of an effort in cleanup versus. Um, you know, I think that we have a process and you don't want to go around that process by making too much policy just because the rules weren't reauthorized. Okay. Some news also from your office this week on education. Uh, Governor Little is going to be looking for two new members of the State Board of Education. Uh, Don Soltman, uh, Richard Westerberg yes. are leaving uh, when their terms expire at the end of June. Walk us through that process and how the governor is going to uh, look at uh, potential candidates for those uh, openings. Well, they, I mean, they have very big shoes to fill. I mean, you know, when you talk about, you know, just going back to the 2013 task force, I mean, Richard Westerberg. Chaired that task force. He chaired it. He did a heck of a great job. I mean, really, you know, I I think if you talk about the consensus style of policymaking on education, I mean, I think that's a testament to the hard work that Richard Westerberg did in in really bringing together that task force and sharing it in a very very successful way after again two years of a pretty contentious time in education policy making in the state so um, and Don Soltman obviously has been a very dedicated board member if you talk to school districts from his neck of the woods I mean they they see him often he's out and about um, very engaged attends meetings very diligently does the work I mean those are very that's a very big job and I know you talked about that but I mean it requires a big time commitment and so um, I, the the outlook at this point and it was fortunate we went through a transition so we've kind of have a little bit of experience in uh, you know making kind of big appointments is uh, we're going to close applications on June 17th and then we're going to begin uh, vetting those names um, and extending having a robust interview process with the objective of having those people in place in early July. Um, is there a background or a demographic that the governor looks at the state board and says, you know, I'd really like to have somebody on the board who comes sure. to the board from this perspective that we don't have right now? I don't want to get too far ahead of the governor, but a couple of things that I will point out that uh, as a staffer I'm looking at is I think I think geography is important, particularly for uh, for Don, because you know that you He's know from North Idaho exactly, He's the one and so we have North. to be very you know we we want we want someone who represents uh, that part of the state, and I think I think the geographical balance is important. 
you know, someone that I was thinking about, and like I said, I don't want to get too far ahead of the governor, is, you know, with Milford Terrell leaving, I, you know, there's not, to me, a clear CTE voice. Mm-hmm. And so that might be someone from industry who understands those issues because, you know, whether you talk about, you know, I know you did some reporting on the Brookings report, you did, uh, you did some reporting on Perkins 5. Uh, you know, we need a board and a board member that's really focused in on that issue. And I think... Uh, so when you know that be, you can't get to the 60% goal exactly. without a strong CTE And it's a component. focus. I mean, you're going to hear more, particularly this summer. I mean, the governor carried that resolution in 20... I believe it was 2017. Uh, I can't remember, 16 or 17, but he carried that resolution. That is a priority of his. I think we're coming to the clear conclusion on the 60% goal that it being population-based, while it was a great strategic exercise and you still have states in the past year that are adopting mm-hmm. that, like Michigan, um, you know, it's a as the governor said, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. And so recalibrating it to the extent that there were focused more on production, for example. And so you can really, and again, you hear this criticism from folks uh, just about, okay, you've you've made this goal. Well, how the heck do you tackle it? And I think mm-hmm. that that's an issue with the task force too, is we need to be very clear on here are our key objectives and how are we going to get there? How, strategically, how are we going to get to this achievement objective, for example? And I think that that's the one thing missing. And so when we're talking about the 60% goal and recalibrating that, I think there needs to be an emphasis on, okay, here's the plan to get there. Here's CTE's portion of that. Um, you know, we've had meetings this week about outcomes-based funding, for example, which came out of the higher ed task force. You know, there's a component of that where, um, you know, a chunk of the state's, uh, the university's uh, support, uh, state support comes from, rather than butts and seats, you know, EWA, mm-hmm. enrollment uh, workload adjustment, it comes from production. And so it's going to take, I mean, it's going to take a multifaceted report or uh, approach, but no one disagrees that it isn't the right goal. If you look at the Brookings report, and obviously, you know, you're going to see the HP report in a few weeks is my understanding mm-hmm. or mid-June. Um you know, it's the perennial challenge of education in this country is how do you keep up with technological progress, workforce needs, um, and we just have to be focused like a laser on those challenges. Between the task force and these two appointments, this feels like this is an opportunity five months in where a new governor is really going to have a chance to make an imprint on education, exactly. and this is uh, the governor's top priority issue. He says is. that uh, you know everywhere he goes. Does he see this as you know this kind of a, an opportunity here to make a mark on where he wants education to go? I think term? that was always the plan. I think that he you know he said it through the campaign, and he said it in his uh, state of the state that you know he was kind of given a gift. Of, of having kind of that fifth year plan, having a clear guidance. And what we were able to do is we focused on two additional key areas, the starting teacher pay um, and then literacy to kind of build onto that. But it gave us the breathing space. And, you know, transitions are crazy things. And I, <laughs> I lived through them and I didn't I didn't know how much work it was going to be and, and how even the most experienced and knowledgeable person of state government, and that's definitely Governor Little, you know that, that that's that's a very frenzied process, and so um, I think now that we've we you know the session's over, you know the rules took a lot more time. The rules uh, uh, making them temporary and proposed that process was took a little bit of time, and now I think now this is the opportunity with those appointments and then a task force, and also reviewing some other things 
like outcomes-based funding and the higher ed task force, which we think there were a lot of good products out of there. Now it's our opportunity to start to chart the governor's direction for the 2020 session. And as the governor's point person on education issues, you've you're going to be busy. I mean, these you know, this is his top priority. He's got an opportunity to do a lot of stuff. Uh, I am not. That's probably taking, a lot that you got to do. Unlike unlike you and Clark, I'm not taking a summer vacation. I'm taking a fall uh, vacation. So that's exactly right. And so, um, yeah, it is going to be busy, but it's going to be fun, absolutely. And and uh, the governor's committed again to bringing people together, kind of making there be a kind of a common vision, a common direction. Um, and then hopefully we can have a lot of people who are carrying uh, different components of this plan moving forward. Well, thanks for carving out some time to talk to us about this. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Again, that was Greg Wilson, Governor Brad Little's education policy analyst. The governor's education task force begins its work Monday morning with a meeting at Boise State University. I'll be there. I'll have full coverage later that day at idahoheadnews.org. And if you want to hear from other education leaders about what they're expecting or hoping to see from the task force, go to idahoheadnews.org. Clark Corbin interviewed some stakeholders about the task force process and left us that story before he took off on vacation. So check that out. And speaking of taking off, that's about what we're ready to do here at the podcast for this week. There's plenty more to read at idohatnews.org. So get caught up on this week and check back with us next week because it's a big week ahead. We launch a four-day series on Monday looking at high poverty schools. And what we're trying to do with this series is look at the connection between poverty and achievement. And what we've done is we've spotlighted several schools in Idaho, Nevada, Washington, and Montana that have managed to have high achievement rates despite high poverty rates. And so we're looking at how that happened and what we can take from that and what we can learn from that. Devin Bodkin and Sandy Edge have been working on this series for a couple of months, talking to students, talking to teachers and trying to find solutions to that ongoing struggle to improve achievement rates in high poverty schools. And I'm going to talk to Devin and Sammy on our podcast next week, and we'll really break down this series, and we'll talk to them about what they saw and what struck them in their reporting. So you'll definitely want to come back for the podcast next week to hear, in their words, what what they saw and and hear firsthand what uh, what they saw in the reporting process. And we also want to hear from you as we uh, launch this series. We have a survey that will be online. You can find that on our Facebook page. So if you're a teacher or a parent or a student, take the survey and join the conversation there. So check in at the website for this series and for all the latest news on education policy and education politics. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for breaking news as well. And come back here next week for another edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We'll get you caught up and we will go into more detail on our poverty series. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.